Welcome back, everybody. Um, well, good morning to you. Um, so uh, we are knee-deep in this series called Citizens and Strangers, and I'm so thankful that you're here because I believe that what we're going to see today is such a valuable piece and component to, to really what it means to walk with Jesus in the midst of, of the darkness that's around us. So I'm grateful that you're here. And we're also going to get to see some things that are incredibly practical. Um, at the end of this talk, you're going to see some things that's like, oh, you don't have to like dig in and wade into some deep theology. I believe that we're just going to be confronted on some things that we just have to do. And uh, the, the crazy thing is we already know that we need to do them. But yet my hope is that you would have more of an appetite for doing these things by the end of this talk. So really the tagline of this series is standing firm when your faith is tested. Now, we believe that if you are living your life for the glory of God, that your faith is going to be tested. Amen? Has anyone ever experienced that in their own life, that where they've tried to live out the, the way of, of Jesus amongst the, the dark world, and then you face that opposition, whether it's big or small? I certainly have. And I know that many of you, probably all of you who claim the name of Christ and are pursuing Jesus actively, you feel that at times. And yet it's also for us... Because we're trying to stand firm when our faith is tested, um, many times we, we change given the circumstance that we're in. I, I saw this commercial this week, and I thought it was so funny. It actually reminded me of my brother, um, for obvious reasons that I'm not going to disclose of you. But uh, um, it did remind me of my brother. I was watching this commercial, and of course it's football season, so we just get inundated with football commercials, and it's an NFL commercial. And it's just this little clip of of just a little promo clip for the NFL, and it's just at the beginning of this, of this commercial for the NFL that they say, it says, you see this guy who has just full-on face paint. I mean, like, not just like a little bit. I mean, he is like full-on, like everything on the top of him is just in this face paint. You just see him just like yelling and just like going crazy. And so I was looking at that, and I was like, wow, that's odd. But then, um, I've never done that, but my brother has and he liked it. Um, and then he got a sunburn, and it literally baked, the, it baked that all into his head that day. And if he was here, I would still say it because it's true. Um, and then everybody would look awkwardly at him. But anyway, so what was, what was shocking about this commercial is it was talking about the NFL and the power of the NFL. And it said, and it would even turn basically a grandfather into this. So this was a grandpa. So then automatically, it's like as soon as they said grandpa, I, I didn't see this screaming face-painted fan who's going crazy. I saw this little grandpa with his little grandson or granddaughter. I was like, what in the world? Like, we just change and we morph given the situation that we're in. It's like, obviously, he felt compelled. He's like, I'm just going to face-paint. I'm going to get all into this thing. And yet, for us, sometimes we change given the circumstance that we're in. And sometimes it's, it's for the right reasons, sometimes it's not for the right reasons. Some of you, you were at a high school dance or your middle school dance, and although you knew how to dance, you knew how to bust a move, you knew how to do all of that, but yet you didn't. You know why? Because it's middle school, right? And because of the situation, you're like, I know how to do this, you know, and I can do all of that, but I'm going to sit and I'm going to put my back against the wall because you changed given the situation. You even denied something that you knew that you could do. We have so many aspects of our life where we do these same things. When we date someone or you seek to date someone and maybe the person you're wanting to date works out all the time. So it's like you automatically morph into like, no, 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 I work out all the time. Like, really? Like, wow, do you, do you find burpees hard? Uh, that's a weird question. Everybody burps. Like everybody, you know, it's like I, you just, 
you change and you morph given the situation. And yet as, as followers of Jesus, if we were to actually stay the course and be who it is that God is making us to be, we would have an incredible impact on the world around us. But yet the remarkable thing is this. It's not that difficult. In, in the given culture, let me, uh, these are some deep things, some easy ways for, for Christians to stand out. These are deep. I got I to read them. They're so deep. You're, I'm like, you're going to want to write these down. Get married and stay married. Whoa, that's deep. Like, get married and work on your marriage. Have children and don't worship them. Right? Like, okay, so, of course, I was totally being sarcastic. It's not deep at all. It's, like, so obvious. Like, if we would just do these things, that we as, as followers of Jesus, we would stand out in the world around us. If you would actually discipline your kids... If you would actually discipline your kids, you would actually stand out and say, whoa, there's something different about them. It's so much different than it was 20, 30 years ago. If you would come to a worship service spiritually ready to receive something from God, if you would come to a worship service spiritually ready to receive something from God, that would be different than what happens many times. If you would actually put your walk with Christ ahead of everything else. That, too, would be so far-reaching. And then I believe if you would do this, as strangers of this world, if you would love one another as a sign and wonder of the power of God, that would have an incredible impact on the world around us. As strangers in this world, if we would love one another as a sign and wonder of the power of God, just illuminating in and through your life, that would be something that would set us apart. You see, the, the Christians in the first century, I want us, before we get into the passage, the Christians in the first century, it wasn't the fact that they, that they worshipped Jesus that, that actually got them persecuted. It was the fact that by, uh, and not just the fact that they were Christians and worshipping Jesus in some vague sense, maybe that we would seek to, to uh, that we would see in our culture, but yet, what separated them was they had given their life to Jesus and their allegiance was to Jesus. And consequently, their allegiance wasn't to Rome. Because their allegiance was to, to Jesus and not to Rome, the Romans were then threatened because they knew there was nothing they could do to them. There was nothing they could do. There was nothing, no way that they could pose this fear because as the Christians were entrenched in their faith, they had already given their life to Jesus. So they thought and they believed that they had nothing to lose because they were in Christ. They had also had these these other type of beliefs. They believed that God had created things good. They also believed that there was a cataclysmic fall in Genesis 3 where sin was introduced into in, not only into humanity, but all, all of creation has then been fallen. And as a consequence to that, they believed that, that there was no way that an individual, in and of their own right or through their own effort, that they could be right with God again because of the effects of sin. The early believers, they also believed that as one... Uh, is one would maybe seek to be reconnected with God, that the only way that they could be reconnected with God was through the repentance of their sin and then surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. 
This is just what they believed. This was just core to them. They also believed that a Christian lives under the righteous rule of the one true king. And his name is Jesus. I was doing some extra reading this week, and there was a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus, I believe was his name. There's no evidence historically that he was actually a Christian. He was actually Roman, again, a Roman historian. He loved Rome. And he actually wrote in his own annals, in his own writings, of the types of things that I've talked about so far, about how Christians were persecuted and, and how the, the animal hides had been sewn into them. But also there was another interesting thing that I read. That he recorded this. He recorded that not only did those other things happen that I've talked about week by week, but also that he was so sick and sadistic that he would uh, take the Christians, the same Christians I told you that would be crucified and they'd be set on fire in his gardens, but that he, he loved charioteers. So he would actually invite people to come out, maybe to his own gardens or to certain areas, and he would literally role play as a charioteer while Christians were burning on crosses, and he would invite all of these people to come out and watch him because he, it was all about him as he would go around as a charioteer and trying to, again, live out this, some sort of fantasy. But he would do that while mocking the Christians, while they would be his, the, these very bodies would be the lanterns of which this happened. And he invited this spectacle. And Tacitus also records in history that this wasn't because the Christians had necessarily done anything wrong. It's just because how evil that emperor was. That it was simply because the emperor Nero just did not like the Christians. Not ultimately even because of them breaking the law. But because they didn't pledge their allegiance to him. We're going to go in verse 22 in chapter 1. And then we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 2, 1 through 3. But I want us to, to get a, a running start, if you will, into this passage because it's important, not only is the word therefore at the beginning of chapter 2, but we'll also see in context really what Peter is talking about to the original audience and to us. And we're also going to see that as he's connecting two gigantic ideas... But again, I want us to understand it's these ideas that are being introduced amongst Christians who were, some of them were Jewish, some of them were Gentiles, and there is a large number of slaves. Some people even say that maybe even two-thirds of the Roman population were slaves. So this is the letter that's being written to them and in the original audience. So all of, this, all of these issues, and this is what he would say to them. Let's look at verse 22. He says, Now that you, have been, that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, see that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. And now he gets into why. So he doesn't just say, hey, go love them. But he says, for you have been born again. He's going back to what? 
their salvation. He's going back to now they have a mental image before Jesus, after Jesus, before I was born again, before I had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but now that they have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word that was preached to you. He says, so now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth. He says, now that you have, in essence, pledged your allegiance to Jesus, you've given your life to Jesus. He says, this is who you are. Not only is this something where you just change your eternal state. Instead, now you're not going to hell. Now you're going to heaven. He says, no, no, no. This is an identity shift. This is a purpose shift. This changes everything about you. That means the people before who you were enemies are not your enemies anymore. Those people are not your enemies. Now they're your brothers. Now, now these people are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says this. He said, love you, love He says, now that you, so that you have, so that, by obeying the truth, so that you will have this love for the brothers, this brotherly love, this Philadelphia. He says, now you're going to have a genuine love for the brother. It's not going to have to be, you're not going to have to conjure something up. It's not going to be fake. It's not going to be hypocritical. It's going to be the real you because what was dead in you is now alive because of Christ working in and through you. Not of perishable, but what? Imperishable. So he goes back, he says, that's who you were, and this is who you are. And he says, so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. That's a different word. That's the Greek word agapeo. Coming from the root agape. That's the you before me. Love. That's the, the love that's identified with only being in Christ. That's the self-sacrificial love. That's, no, 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 you, you before me. This is the, the posture. Is it the posture of the mind? Let's go back to our passage. What does he say at the end of verse 22? It's the posture of the heart, not the mind. Meaning that it's, it's deeper than your mind. This isn't just something that we should think. This is something that we live out from our heart. It's out of the, out of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's out of the heart that, that you live and do everything. All of your beliefs and your behaviors are shaped out of your heart. And then he continues... He says, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God, meaning that the living and enduring word of God, meaning the word of God, the Bible, the scriptures, the holy scriptures, the inspired scriptures. Now they're moving in and through you. And he says, now you, you've, you're obeying Christ and you're obeying his word. You're, you're deeply and richly dwelling in the Bible in the scriptures of the time and it's changing you and the Holy Spirit is using the scriptures to change you. Not just the way that you think, but, but the way that you love from your heart. 
Then he goes back in verse 24. He says, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word that was preached to you. He says, this is not new information. I'm telling you something you should already know. And, and Christians in the room, today, I'm going to tell you things that you already know. There's probably nothing new that I'm even going to talk about here. But these are things that we can't just know that we have to actually do from our heart. Verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. This is a connection back to Psalm 34, 8, where it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's not correcting them. He's encouraging them. When he says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, he's not doing what it is that Paul did with similar language. Instead, he's saying, no, 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 you've already tasted how good God is. He says, you already have an appetite for it. So just, just continue to, to savor it and enjoy it and to dig into it. As Paul would say in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. Not superficially, not on a surface level, but at the heart level. So that it changes and shapes you from the inside out. Remember, for all you parents, maybe some of you older teenagers, maybe you send your kids out to play and they got themselves absolutely filthy. Your kids ever do that? Out to play and then and you, sent out, you sent them out there and, and they were fine. And, and then after a while, they're outside playing, and then you just look out the window, and you're mortified because maybe they're like, they found the sprinkler, they found the hose, they got in the pond, you know, they rolled around in the dirt after they got in the pool. Maybe they got in the pool, then rolled around in the dirt, and then got back in the pool. Who knows what that, what that looked like. It's, it's this type of language that Peter's talking about when he says, rid yourselves. It's, it's, it's a metaphor, if you will, for someone who, who literally... Um, and in speaking of somebody who literally had been drenched or had been filthy, and they literally are just taking, just peeling off the layers, just peeling off the layers. It's that. It's like this is who you were. This is who you were. And he says, therefore, let's go back to the passage, verse 1. He says, therefore, peel off the layers, rid yourselves. What I love about this is these are things that we do. These aren't things that we just, we just go to a service and we just kind of limp through a service and we just kind of sit here and be like, and we can't just like just wait for the preacher to clean us up. These are things that we literally have to do. This means we can't just kind of just read the Bible ourselves and be like, whoo, I got that over with. I checked that off my list. Thank you, Bible app. Here, I'm just going to go through this. I'm just going to fly through this right now. Instead, he says, rid yourselves. That means, that means you have to have to actually take the word and do what it says and actually do what it says and in verse one he says rid yourselves in other words peel off those layers 
It's taking off the clothes before you come in. That's what you told your, your kids, right? You said, take your clothes off before you come in. You're filthy. That's what my mom and grandma and dad, and, well, everyone around me said when I was a kid. You see, for us as believers, loving one another requires that we rid ourselves of those things that betray that love. When we love one another, it requires that we rid ourselves of those things that betray our love. And, and what he would say next in, in talking about malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind, all of these things betray love, don't they? I mean, we cannot say and be, we can't say and also be true at the same time to say, oh, I really love you and mean it if we're doing any of these things. Because if you're doing any of these things, you're actually proving that you don't love them. The same language about putting off or, or ridding ourselves, the same language that Paul would use in Romans 13, 12. And he says this, the, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's the same language. Taking off and putting on. Taking off and putting on. He's saying, you're not going to be able to put on love for one another. You're not going to be able to live in the, in, in the fruit of the Spirit if you also have these other things that are evident in your life. He continues. There's another passage that Paul uh, that. Paul says, he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on your new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And that's what it says in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Oh, you want some more? I've got one more. Colossians 3, 8 says this, in case you didn't believe the first couple. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. You must rid yourselves. You must take these off. You must peel them off as if you want, you want nothing to do with these things. These are harmful practices that betray love for one another. Here's the list. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Some of the same things that Peter would get to. Again, these aren't new things. These are repeated throughout the New Testament because these things we have to rid ourselves of if we're really going to love one another. You know, love always wins. Love always wins. I was looking at some images, and I'm going to talk about this more, I think, next week or the week after. I'm not really sure. But I was looking at some images of of the Colosseum and, and the cruelty and all those things that happened there. And, and I noticed on this picture at the front of the main entrance of the Colosseum, and I've, I've had the opportunity of going there, so I've seen this, but I looked at this, this image of, of the Colosseum, and there's a cross right into, the, right into the main entrance. And I was like, well, how could that be? I mean, how could there be a cross right in the main and right literally on that entrance going into the Colosseum, knowing the despicable things, some of those we're going to talk about in the days to come. But how is it? You see, the, the reason why is somewhere along the road, and I don't know the, 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 the history or the storyline as to when the cross was placed there, but what I do know is love always wins. 
Because in that, there was some time in history where now they recognized what had happened in, in the Colosseum and the despicable things that happened, but yet at some time in history, they put the cross there. As a reminder of whom? Christ, of course. Then there's another way that we can notice this because the Roman culture that Christianity was birthed in, the Roman culture would actually, they would just burn their own dead. That's what they would do. They would just burn them. But yet Christians bury their dead. And by that, and now we can go out through the, the, the countryside right here in middle Georgia. And every time that, that you drive by a cemetery and you look and see that, that there are deceased people who are in the ground, that's a reminder that love always wins. Because there's no, there's no bodies being burned. We bury them as a sign of honor. But also that is just something else that we have in our culture that's a reminder that, that the way of Christianity won over Roman rule. Back to our passage. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. And we do this because this betrays the love that was mentioned in verse 22, where it said, love for your brother, so that you have a sincere, a real, and authentic love for your brothers, and love one another deeply from the heart. I ran across this excellent quote from an excellent book called Total Truth. And the lady who wrote it, is her name is Nancy Piercy. And this is what she said. She said, We build the city of man whenever our actions are motivated by self-love, serving sinful purposes. We build the city of God when our actions are animated and directed by the love of God, offered up in His service. So when we, the, the, we build up the city of man, that's our own fleshly desires and all the things that are actually um, working in direct opposition to the Spirit, whenever our actions are motivated by self-love or selfishness or selfish ambition, serving sinful practices. But conversely, we build up the, the city of God. We become the, the citizens in the world that then our love shines out like a sign and wonder of the power of God through us when we're directed and animated by the love of God and that's offered up in His service. So let's bring this, this sermon home with some very practical things. What are we supposed to rid ourselves of? What are we supposed to peel off? What are the layers that's supposed to be away from us? First one, all malice. All malice. Loving one another requires us to rid ourselves of malice. Malice is the vicious intention or desire to harm someone. It's the vicious intention or, or just the desire to hurt someone. And we do this primarily in two ways, but I would say as Christians, we probably do it more primarily in one avenue more than the other. We do this through, through words and actions. And we see this as a biblical example. We see the, the betrayal and abandonment of Joseph 
by his brothers, there was malice there. There was just leaving him for dead. Of course, we know that God has the, the right to rule and overrule, and he took that, and it was just an amazing thing that happened through that. And just, just how that storyline of Joseph and his brothers actually turned out was incredible. But it was malice. That's a, that's a biblical example. The crucifixion of Jesus was the ultimate form of malice. Some other ways of malice for us, and just I just have some examples, just so we can understand that just because we look at a word that we don't use every day, I want us to understand that it's something that does impact us every day. So the words that we use can be malice. It's when a student spreads rumors about another because they don't like the other person. They don't like that the other person is more popular. So they use, these, they use these stories or maybe they spread rumors about a student simply because the other student is more popular. So now they're trying to get back at them and hurt them. Uh, again, maybe it's, it's a group of people. They get together and then they just decide to, to ignore someone else. Just inflict pain and loneliness on them. Maybe it's, it's somebody... In, in a home, and they say, I hate you. Or they say, I don't want anything to do with you. Or they say, I wish you were never born. And I hope that didn't happen in your home or in any home you've ever lived in. But I know it's true of some homes. All of that is malice with words. There's also some actions these are more obvious, maybe. But some actions. Uh, perhaps a married man, he gets mad at his wife, so he steps out on the marriage and begins to take, to just begins talking to the other woman, not because he's necessarily interested in the other woman, but just simply because he wants to get back at his wife. Or maybe after a fight, the wife goes out and they spend, she spends their savings at a shopping trip simply because she's mad at her husband, so now she wants him to hurt like she felt hurt. Maybe it's a family member. They intentionally hurt another family member, like physically, simply because they're mad at each other. All of this is malice. All of this is malice. Let's look at another example. Loving one another requires us to rid ourselves of all deceit. Write down the list. First one's malice. This is deceit. Loving one another requires that we rid ourselves of all malice and deceit. Deceit is when you mask impure motives by doing acts of righteousness. It's actually, you go out and you, may, you, you try and make yourself look good, but really your motives are bad. This, this does happen in church where maybe you go through and you're like, uh, or in churches, where somebody says, oh, they, just, they go to that church just because they believe that, um, that if they do that, they're going to be more socially connected. Or they go to that church simply because that's where the movers and shakers in the community go. So if they go to that church and that's where the movers and shakers are, then their motives are impure. It's not about worshiping. It's not about Jesus. It's about what they can gain by being around those other people who they think are, who they think are going to give them more influence or leverage. Some examples. Uh, deceit 
classic example of this is, who's ever heard of the, a Ponzi scheme? Ponzi, anyone ever heard of that? The Ponzi scheme. It's actually named after a guy, Charles Ponzi. It's so bad that for the rest of, of humanity, probably, you're anything like any type of scheme like this to where you literally, you, you deceive people by saying, hey, we're all going to make some money off this, but really it's just an exchange where they, somebody would take your money. That's what he did. Charles Ponzi, he took pe- people's money. And he said he was doing something with it, but he wasn't. He was pocketing a bunch of it. And then he would just pay out a little bit to someone else, but he himself was becoming incredibly wealthy. As a matter of fact, uh, he was making at the, at the height of what Charles Ponzi would do, some sort of mail and postal reply coupon scheme. Of course, it wouldn't work today. We buy stamps, right? Not very many of us. But he was making, in essence, of $250,000 a day in his day. That's equivalent to about $3 million a day in today's money. Like, that's some bad stuff. But this Ponzi scheme, so he was deceiving people. And now, how terrible is it that forever, when these types of things or anyone, if you think of a, of a triangle, the whole triangle scheme thing, it always goes back to the Ponzi scheme. Charles Ponzi will be forever known as being a crook because he was actually... Um, confirmed to be guilty of 86 counts of mail fraud. And this is the same thing that, that Bernie Madoff did as well. And you want a biblical example of deceit, you look at Jacob and Esau. Jacob, his name uh, was Deceiver, the heel grabber. So literally, he, he deceived, and it was deceit. And he, he twisted things around to to get the birthright and blessing from his brother Esau. And, of course, if you've read that, you know how that works out. I'll give some other examples of deceit. John seems very interested in the struggles of a woman's life, but he does it because he just wants to date her. Or Bill, he poses as a parking attendant. <laughs> this one's great. I came up with this one. This one's, this one's the best. Bill poses as a parking attendant at, cheese, at, at the Cheesecake Factory only to steal your car. <laughs> like, I don't know why that was so good to me, but probably because I want some Cheesecake Factory. I don't know. Um, turtle Cheesecake is my favorite, and I've got a birthday coming, so there's a hint. Um, here we go. Here's another example. Barb runs a non-for-profit, and the company is expanding, but she uses the money to actually fund her gambling addiction. So on the front end, it looks like, oh, this is noble, this is right, this is honorable. But yet on the back end, it actually has very twisted motives. And, and it's, this is still common today to where the motives are wrong, but yet on, on the surface we say, oh, this is, you know, this is just, this is a great person. I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, this one really hits home. Where somebody maybe would attend a church who's not even a believer, but they would attend a church just long enough to convince someone that they're dating, that they're actually interested in Christ because the person who they're interested in is a Christian. So they come to church long enough, but their motives are not pursuing Christ or worship at all. Instead, their motives are to get this other person. And sadly, I've seen this trap over and over and over where they're only interested in Christ long enough that they would actually get this person or perhaps trap this person in a marriage and then they leave the church. Over and over and over again, I've seen this. And this is deceit. 
it's something that, that happens, and sadly, this has even happened at this church. So this is not something that I'm just talking, you know, out of, out of turn. This is something that has happened here and has wounded me and others deeply here. So next one, loving one another requires us to rid our lifestyles of hypo- rid ourselves of hypocritical lifestyles. To rid ourselves of hypocritical lifestyles. Meaning that on the outside we look in, in one way, but on the inside we look a different way. Going back to what I said last week, be who you are. Be who you really are. Hypocrites are people who, who've professed allegiance to Christianity, but they've only done it for their own profit or prestige. So, I'll give you the last one, and then I'm through. Actually, I'm not through. I've got two more. Sorry. It's going to be at least another 20, 30 minutes. Next one's this. Loving one another requires us to rid ourselves of envy, of wanting other people's stuff, wanting other people's lives, wanting other people's marriages, wanting other people's possessions, wanting other people's positions, wanting other people's kids. If we are going to love one another as a sign and wonder of the power of God in our life, we have to rid rid ourselves of all envy, of all envy. Stop living our lives in comparison to other people. And social media is, is a great weapon, actually, against loving one another well because there's a reason why Instagram is called Enviagram. Because in it, there are a lot of characters of people and it just can cause us to just compare ourselves to someone else because everybody puts the manicured thing, manicured picture in our social media feed and we have to be really careful of that. That doesn't spur up envy because we actually move the, we, we lose the essence of who we are by trying to be someone else. And when we do that, We're not going to allow God to be God. Instead, we're making that person God as we're envying something about them or them as people. Last one. Loving one another requires us to rid ourselves of slander. This is any speech which intends to harm someone, to demean someone, to ruin someone's reputation. Even the people you disagree with. Even the, even the person maybe that you, that you right now can't be in the same room with. It's that person that we also cannot slander because we're to love one another well. We have to really watch our words. We have to really, really watch our words. You see, as strangers of this world, we need to love one another as a sign and wonder of the power of God. And although these do have theological implications, everything that I just said has theological implications. But it's so practical, isn't it? If we would actually start growing in the love for one another and that we would just commit when something in our heart just spurs us to to bring about malice or slander or deceit or hypocrisy or any of those things, if any of that would come up to us, instead we would just go to Jesus and we'd say, Jesus, I repent. And please help me peel off that layer 
of deceit. Please help me peel off that layer of slander. Please help me peel off and just take away that, that layer of hypocrisy. And when we do this, and we're not going to be perfect at it, but when we do that and we trust in the grace of God and we live in the power of God and we live under the, the fruit of the Spirit, we, we will be the people who are, are viewed as, as being the strangers in this world, but it will be so wonderful for the watching world as they look at us and they see the power of God through, going through us. And when the power of God goes through us and the fruit of the Spirit dwells in us, love for one another is so evident. And I want to just finish with this. Love always wins. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for loving us first. Loving the unlovable the prideful, the envious, the hypocritical, those of us who have been full of deceit, those who envy, those who have said and done horrible things against other people. Every, every person who commits their life to you, Jesus, brings all of that baggage with them, trusting in the finished work of the cross. And God, for us, all of us who are Christians in the room. God, I pray that you would help us to grow in grace and help us to grow in, in knowledge and help us to grow with more of a spiritual awareness when we are going to defy the love for one another by using malice or deceit or, or hypocrisy or envy or slander. And Lord, also, I ask that you would just give us more of a craving or a desire for this pure spiritual milk that, that we would grow to even more so be able to taste and see that you're good. Lord, for the person who's not a follower of Jesus, and maybe some of this is yet attractive because they look at this and they say, my life doesn't look like that, but, but, it, but I want it to. Lord, I don't know what you're doing in each person who's in the room, but maybe there's a person who, who doesn't know you. And right now the Spirit is, is touching their spirit and drawing them. Father, I pray that, that as you just continue to, to draw and move by your Spirit, God, that you lead that person to repentance, confession of their sin, acknowledgement that, that you, Jesus, were the perfect and atoning sacrifice for their sin and for the sins of the world. And allow them the grace to, to walk under the kingship and lordship of you. Lord, thank you for being so abundantly good. Good when we're not good. Powerful when we're weak. Graceful when we have nothing for ourselves or others. We owe everything to you, Jesus. Amen.